damn well right better give him a contract extension. You're damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans Bob The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my winner. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. All right, I got my three today, and the first thing we're going to jump right into is the questions about the upcoming MLB free agency. You've seen a lot of traction in regards to teams focusing on starting pitchers, most notably on shorter-term deals. You got Justin Verlander signing a contract. You got Noah Syndergaard signing a contract, both for shorter terms. Um, You've yet to see somebody really break the bank with a five-plus year contract and certainly nothing that has approached a hundred million dollars yet and a couple of the things that were being brought up and discussed about the potential about of, of this major league baseball offseason was that things were going to be a, a little bit different there was going to be more signings up before the start of the baseball winter meetings which are going to be december 3rd and every bit of it is centered around the upcoming cba between the players and the owners expiring on December 1st. And we are just about guaranteed to be looking at some sort of work stoppage. We don't see any traction in regards to the Players Association and the commissioner and the owners uh, getting any closer to a, a deal. So it looks like the owners are going to lock out the players. And because of that, there's going to be a freeze on transactions starting the first day of December. And what is going to happen here is, in my prediction, the exact opposite of what we thought would happen at this offseason at this point. Now, we thought there was going to be a lot of players signed, a lot of free agent moves done. I'm actually going the other way, believing that we're going getting a little bit further from that being a possibility. Now, I still think there might be a couple pitchers. You know, the Steven Matz, perhaps Marcus Stroman decides to sign a deal sometime between now and December 1st. I don't know. But the big ticket free agent position players, I would be shocked if any of them signed before December 1st. And that's the Carlos Correa's, the Trevor Stories, the Corey Seegers, the Marcus Simeons, the Javier Baez's. Freddie Freeman even. And we look at Freddie Freeman and we think it's just a foregone conclusion and he's going to go back and return to the Atlanta Braves. And it still may be the case, but I don't think it's going to happen until the next CBA comes in. And here is why. This is the reason. It doesn't make any sense for teams to commit a significant amount of money while we're still sitting on the same terms of what the luxury tax soft salary cap as it's set right now is going to be. We don't know if it's going to change. We don't know if the new CBA is going to include something distinctly different when it comes to how teams can handle 
the luxury tax and the penalties that are involved in it? Is it going to be raised? Teams would be very foolish to commit themselves to significant amount of money to individual players when that uncertainty exists. So that's the number one reason. Number two, you know, for a team to sign a player, make that sort of commitment, you know, this is kind of a pick back or piggyback off of number one. It, it, it doesn't make sense to blow over the luxury tax threshold if we don't know what the next set of parameters is going to be. In other words, there's no set of instructions on how to manage your payroll. Now, odds are the Players Association are not going to agree to anything that's going to make it worse. You know, the you know we're not all of a sudden the players aren't aren't going to agree to a hard salary cap that's going to be less than what the luxury tax threshold is right now. Those those are all things that are prob- that are most likely off the table. But that being said, it's going to be an almost an impossible task to expect to see the free agent movement that was projected coming into this offseason. December 1st is coming, and I think teams are sitting back saying, hey, wait, why isn't anybody else moving on Carlos Correa and Corey Seager and Trevor Story and Javier Baez and Freddie Freeman and Marcus Simeon and even Marcus Stroman? Marcus Stroman is the most high-profile starting pitcher that's on the market as a free agent right now. He's going to get the biggest contract out of anybody. Robbie Ray will probably get the second, but Marcus Stroman should get a contract well in the excess of $150 million, maybe even approaching $200 million. And if I'm a team and I don't know exactly what the parameters of the new CBA is going to be, then I'm going to have a hard time committing a Boku amount of money to an individual player right now. So now we're looking at no major free agent signings from now till December. Does that mean, does that mean that nobody is going to sign? Steven Matz announced he's probably going to sign tomorrow. Who knows? Any one of about 8 or 9 teams are in the mix. Uh, you know, he's going to be LeBron James for a day and have his decision where he ends up playing for the next couple of years. Eduardo Rodriguez signed with the Detroit Tigers. Justin Verlander and, Mar- and uh, Noah Syndergaard signed as free agents. Aaron Loop signed a free agent contract. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be any activity between now and December 1st. But it's all going to be on the lesser scale. Yes, starting pitchers will sign. And those are big ticket items. But we're not going to see a $100 million contract between now and December 1st. And you wait for one of these clowns, one of these you know national baseball reporters that know everything. Wait for them to say it in their own words, and then all of a sudden you'll believe them. But remember, I told you first. Number two, this is the yearly time where you get to hear me bitch and complain about the Baseball Hall of Fame. The ballot was released yesterday. A couple familiar names that you'll see on there that have been on there for the last eight or nine years. Hall of Famers that should be in the Hall of Fame. But we got a couple new players, or players that are eligible for the first time. Poppy, Big Poppy, David Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez. And you know, perhaps we could talk about the possibility, maybe a better chance that Ortiz or A-Rod 
gets a little closer to the Baseball Hall of Fame than Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, which is a little silly. Because when it comes down to it, you talk about those four players, and if they played any other sport and were as dominant as they were in baseball, they'd already be in the Hall of Fame. There would be no doubt about it. It wouldn't be a discussion. You know, We're going to talk about Kevin Garnett in a little bit. You know, If Kevin Garnett was in baseball, the baseball writers and the media and the fans would do everything they can to hold him back and keep him out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's what the Baseball Hall of Fame is about. It's about trying to come up with reasons to not include players. But you want to talk about the issue of steroids. And steroids might piss you off. Steroids might bother you. Steroids might impact your judgment on a player's character. While all that may be true, how do you explain the hypocrisy that exists in the sport? How do you explain the fact that there's multiple players in the Baseball Hall of Fame that use performance-enhancing drugs? Mainly Yvonne Rodriguez, who was outed by Jose Canseco. He was outed by Jose Canseco in, in the same way that many other players were outed by Jose Canseco. In fact, players that are being held out of Baseball's Hall of Fame because Jose Canseco said that they used. Well, he said Yvonne Rodriguez used. Yvonne Rodriguez was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Deserved. I absolutely have no re- uh, issue with him being in the Hall of Fame, but it's, this explains part of the hypocrisy. Why is he allowed in? And Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and Roger Clemens and Manny Ramirez and Rafael Palmero. Why are they not allowed in? Mike Piazza. I love Mike Piazza. One of my favorite baseball players of all time. He admitted to using Andro. Now, Andro, if a player uses Andro today, they would be subject to the same suspension that any player that tests positive for the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Mark McGuire admitted using it. Part of that is the reason why he's not in, the base, in baseball's Hall of Fame. Now, did Mike Piazza use any more? Did he use any harder anabolic steroids? There was no evidence to ever explain that or ever claim that. So I'm not going to be the first to do that. But if, uh, if Mike Piazza used Andro, and Andro is a band-controlled substance that would leave the violator subjected to an 80-game suspension for the use of performance-enhancing drugs, then you have to kind of connect the dots a little bit. I love Mike Piazza. But to me, I look at him as a player that used something that he shouldn't have been using. Used something that some other players are being held out of the Baseball Hall of Fame because they used. It's time to clean this up. Not clean up the game by restricting all the best players to be in the Hall of Fame, but clean the game up to acknowledge the best players that ever played in a sport. And it's time to acknowledge Barry Bonds. It's time to acknowledge Roger Clemens and Sammy Sosa and Gary Sheffield and Manny Ramirez. And by the way, Gary Sheffield, there was no smoking gun on Gary Sheffield. Jose Canseco didn't rat out Gary Sheffield. There's a couple whispers about Gary Sheffield. Guy had friggin' 500 home runs. The guy was one of the strongest, most powerful right-hand hitters the game has ever seen. Like I said, if he played any other sport, he'd be in a friggin' Hall of Fame. But we're going to sit here and, and continue with this hypocrisy. Led by 
Yvonne Rodriguez, and Mike Piazza, and likely some other players. Frank Thomas gets a pass. Jim Tomey gets a pass. Oh, because there was nothing ever to link them to the use of performance-enhancing drugs, yet they played in the steroids era. So did Pedro Martinez. So did Greg Maddox. What makes them so different from Roger Clemens outside of the smoking gun that's trying to rat out Roger Clemens? What made Roger Clemens a no-doubt steroid cheat and what completely exonerates Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson, and Greg Maddox? It's evidence. It's smoking guns. It's, in some cases, people ratting or maybe saying information that can either can neither be proven to be true or proven to not be true. The issue is, is baseball has embarrassed himself. And then you got the king of all kings when it comes to embarrassment, Bud Selig, standing in a front row in 1998, cheering as loud as he can, encouraging Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa during the historic home run chase as they both tried to break Roger Maris's single-season home run record. And not only is he not penalized for his negligence, he is looked at as a hero. Oh, he took steroids out of the game. He's in baseball's Hall of Fame. So you got the presider over the steroids era in the Hall of Fame. But those that are accused to have used are the ones being held back. And honestly, I'm not going to talk, talk much more about it. You listen to any other of the 500 or so shows that I've done, my take has been pretty consistent. It's time to honor the best players in baseball like they do the other sports. And if steroids is your issue, then how do you explain the hypocrisy about the players in baseball that are in the Hall of Fame that have used? And maybe it's time for those that have used performance-enhancing drugs that are in the Baseball Hall of Fame, knowing that nobody's going to vote them out. But just to be honest, and stand up and say, hey, I used. For the betterment of the other players that used that belong in a Hall of Fame. And then you got the commissioner. Like I said, the commissioner presides over the steroids era. And he gets rewarded by a ticket in the Baseball's Hall of Fame. So number three is the Kevin Garnett documentary. Which I got a chance to see yesterday. Uh, a couple people had said, hey, check this out. It's pretty good. Um... First thing, I'm, I'm going to maybe, I don't know, uh, not necessarily uh, back it up with this statement. There wasn't a lot in the documentary that I watched that I didn't already know. And that's not patting myself on the back as a, as a sports you know fanatic. But, you know, there's a couple things that I thought were pretty interesting. But uh, the Kevin Garnett story is you know being one of the first players to be drafted right out of high school, uh, playing for a Minnesota Timberwolves franchise, which is an expansion team, taking them to the playoffs or the city of Minnesota to the playoffs for the first time since 1960 when the Lakers played there. And obviously the contract, which I was aware of, the $100 million contract, he turned down. He ends up signing a $126 million deal and basically... Um, forces the reform 
uh, amongst the the NBA and the eventual lockout and the agreement of the salary cap and the max salaries that you see in a in the game today. That all I was all aware of. Obviously, him going to join up with Paul Pierce and Ray Allen in Boston, winning a championship there. You know, those were all you know powerful things, and I, I enjoyed watching that. Happy that I, I I understood it, but also gave myself a chance to kind of relive um, a player that I got to see his entire career. And I saw the Allen Iverson documentary, and I, I did a show about that, you know, maybe last year or so. And what stands out about these two players, they're legitimate NBA Hall of Famers and stars that I got to see their career from A to Z. You know, I got to watch Allen Iverson from his, his year in Georgetown to being drafted number one overall by Philadelphia and then watching Kevin Garnett pretty much from the beginning to the end. And it's it's, it's nice when you kind of go back in that time and say, hey, I, I remember, I know of this player, I know his entire career. A couple things I didn't pay as much attention to that I kind of kind of went back in my head. Kevin Garnett's relationship with Malik Seeley. And I haven't disclosed this on this show. A lot of people don't really know. But I'm a huge Malik Seeley fan. Malik Seeley played from, with St. John's in the late 80s, early 90s. He was the best player on that team. I didn't follow a ton of college basketball, but I went through a stage where I really rooted for Lou Carnesecca and the St. John's Redmen, who are now the Red Storm. Obviously, they haven't had the same type of success over the last decade plus. But Malik Seeley was a player that I remember just watching. I'm like, dude, this dude can play. I can't wait to see him play in the NBA. And he ended up having a pretty good career. What I didn't know is about how close he was to Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett makes a statement, hey, I wore number 21 through my entire career for Malik Seeley. I had no idea. That was the first wow moment of watching a documentary. I was like, holy shit. I, did, I had no idea that Kevin Garnett wore 21 because of Malik Seeley. And like I said, Malik Seeley, one of the best college players that I've ever seen, one of my favorite college players that I got to watch growing up. So that, I thought that was pretty fascinating. The other thing, no mention at all in the documentary about his time with the Brooklyn Nets. Now the Nets and Billy King made a huge trade with the Celtics. Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. I think Jason Terry also went over there. And this was a big move to help the Brooklyn Nets get close to an NBA championship, win one within a year or so. Obviously, that didn't happen. Obviously, it didn't work out at all. And the the Nets you know, end up kind of being in a tough position for a couple of years. They lost all those draft picks. You saw what the Celtics were able to do with the, the, the picks that they took kind of giving themselves a chance to make some noise in the postseason, even though they, they were kind of a letdown too, even up to this point. You look at that trade and you say, hey, how bad of a trade was it for the Brooklyn Nets? Boston Celtics kind of gave themselves an extra window and haven't necessarily come through. You've seen the, the Brooklyn Nets build themselves back. Now, of course, they built themselves back through free agency. You, know, you, you get to sign a guy like uh, like uh, Kevin Durant, you get to sign a guy like Kyrie Irving, even though he's not playing now. You get to trade for a dude like James Harden. And I think you can build the team up pretty quickly. And the Nets were able to do that. And you can make a case the Nets are, you know, 
ways ahead of the Boston Celtics right now. So when we talked about how bad of a trade it was of Garnett and Pierce going to the Nets and how good it was for the Celtics, I don't know if it was really a good trade for the Celtics either. Uh, they they, they cre- created some fagazi, fagazi, right? They made, they made you think that there was this open window where this team was going to compete for an NBA championship year in and year out. I look at this year right now. Where do you rank them in the Eastern Conference? Who cares where they are in the standings? But how many teams do you look at Eastern Conference and say they're better than the Boston Celtics right now? Now, if you're a Boston Celtics fan, you got everything to be happy about. Think about the amount of championships they've won. What, 17, 18 championships over the course of time? Bill Russell, the 11 and 13 years. The Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Dennis Johnson years. And then, of course, you got the championship that Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce won uh, in, what, 2008. And you could tell he was proud about that, winning winning a championship. And listen, Garnett, a little bit of a shit talker. And, and that's one thing that I always knew about him. He was one of those guys who was just... You know, he, he was a physical player, but he, he'd talk his share of trash. Say, hey, I'm better than you. I like the couple couple knocks he had against Tim Duncan. He said, Tim Duncan, a quiet guy, but he, he very quietly talked trash to you. And, and I like that. You know, he said, hey, how did that go? Yeah, nice shot, huh? He, he talked trash to you, too. And you know what? The NBA is, is a game like that. It, it's physical. It's personal. You know, you're standing on the other side playing against a player on the other team. You're not supposed to like him. And that's the way Kevin Garnett played. He was a dominant defensive player, an absolute first ballot Hall of Famer. And I I like to see a documentary about a player like that. Because you you think about the game right now. It's centered around offense and three-pointers. You know, you could put Duncan in the same category. Kind of the last of the Mohicans. Last of the real solid all-around NBA players. Now you got somebody like a Ben Simmons, and I'm not going to open up a Ben Simmons discussion today because I really don't feel like talking about him. But Ben Simmons traditionally is a very good defensive player to a point where he plays all defense and doesn't want to be involved in the offense. You got some good defensive players in the NBA. Anthony Davis is a solid two-way player. But there's very few stars in the National Basketball Association that play defense at a high level. And Kevin Garnett played defense at an extremely high level, was one of the best players in the NBA on the defensive side for years, and had a great 20-year career. Like I said, the Sealy mentioned that he was as close with Malik Sealy. Um, obviously, I knew that they played together, but I didn't know. I had no idea that Kevin Garnett wore number 21 because of Malik Seeley. I thought that was outstanding. Like I said, the number two thing that I got out of it, no mention at all about the time in Brooklyn with the Nets. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Quick recap of the three topics of today's show. First one, free agency in baseball. I'd be shocked to see a player sign for $100 million or more be- between now and December 1st. Baseball is going to go into lockout mode. The terms are not set of what the next CBA is going to be. So teams that are ready to dish out the big money, unroll the carpet, uh, lay, lay out, or like I said yesterday, talking about the Yankees backing up the Brinks truck, they're going to be on hold because they don't know exactly what the next CBA is going to entail. Is it going to include the luxury tax? 
If it does, what is it going to be? Is it going to be raised a little bit? If you have a little more money to spend, yes. If you know that, you may be a little more inclined to push the envelope and sign a player for some more money. I'd be shocked if Carlos Correa got his $300 million deal before December 1st. Now, it's different. It kind of is uh, contrary to what I believed earlier. But I believe right now that none of these major free agents are going to be off the board by December 1st. Marcus Stroman, to me, because of the run that's going on starting pitchers, if there was a $100 million player, and obviously I think Stroman's going to get closer to $200 million, but if there's a player on the list that I think could sign before December 1st, it's because of the run that's going on starting pitchers. And that's the only reason. But the uncertainty about what the soft salary cap, which is what the luxury tax in baseball is, is going to be the reason now that none of the big ticket free agents are going to sign before December 1st. So that was number one. Number two, you've heard my rant a million times about the Baseball Hall of Fame, the hypocrisy, the embarrassment, the fact that you got the commissioner that ran the steroids era in Baseball's Hall of Fame. You got players like Yvonne Rodriguez that used PEDs or at least were accused by Jose Canseco, the same smoking gun that has information that's holding other players out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And there's other players that are in the Baseball Hall of Fame that use PEDs. There's players that selectively were not suspected that played in the steroids era and likely used. And it's not fair for me to declare that somebody used when there's no evidence of whether they did or didn't. But there's certainly reason to have speculation. There's certainly reasons to say what makes Frank Thomas free of suspicion. What makes Jim Tomey free of suspicion. Outside of the fact that they haven't been accused, they played in the same era. If somebody wanted to throw some shade their way, would they be treated the way the Manny Ramirez's and the Sammy Sosa's and the Rafael Palmeiro's and the Maguire's and the Bonds and the Clemens, et cetera, et cetera. Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson, Greg Maddox, they get a free pass. All There's no reason to even bring them up. Why? And Kurt Schilling. You know, to, to me, Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Famer. He's, he was better in the postseason than Jack Morris. He was... Better in the postseason than John Smoltz. He's up there with Bob Gibson as good as he was in the postseason. And he was a solid pitcher. 3,000 strikeouts. An absolute ace. One of the best pitchers of his generation. He's not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Why? Because you don't like his political views? Why? Because you don't think he likes you? It has nothing to do with you, the baseball writer. It has nothing to do with you, the fan. Either the player warrants being in a Hall of Fame or not. And the stupidest thing that exists out there is this vague character clause. And I put it in air quotes when I say character clause. Because it basically creates a whole other dimension of coming up with reasons to hold players out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Which, once again, is a sport that was started from deviance in the early 1900s. In the 19th century, in the 1800s, the men in the country were building this new nation. 
It was about building America. And if you were not part of building America, if you were a deviant, you likely made your homemade bourbon or moonshine, drank recklessly, smoked, and probably were a criminal in the way that you acted. And then you played this game on a bench with a bunch of other players when you're likely intoxicated as you're playing. It was called baseball. Those are the forefathers of this great game that you make like it's full of saints. And throughout its history, you've had betters and gamblers control the outcome of games. You've had racism forcing two separate leagues to have to exist at the same time that black players couldn't play with white players. You had the first commissioner in baseball that basically said, over my dead body, would a black player ever play on the same field as a white player? And it was literally. Because until Kennesaw Mountain Landis died, there was no chance that a black player was going to play in the same field as a white player. And then you throw in collusion amongst owners who did everything they could to keep from having to pay the players what they were worth. Free agency, which tipped scales the other way. Multiple lockouts and strikes. And then steroids. First being enabled into the sport and then running rampant throughout the sport. And you say this was supposed to be a goody two-shoes game? I think we're a little mistaken. Kevin Garnett document documentary, two things I got out of it that I didn't know. His relationship with Malik Seeley, the fact that he wore number 21 because of Malik Seeley. And Malik Seeley was one of my favorite college players growing up. I loved him in St. John's. And, you know, may he rest in peace. Terrible that he, he ended up dying in that accident years ago. And obviously it was while he was still an active player. And then number two, no reference in a KD documentary of his time with the Brooklyn Nets. And he went to the Nets with Paul Pierce, a player that you could tell he became pretty good buds with. No mention of the time in Brooklyn with the Nets. We'll be back with you next week. Once again, this is the Passball Show. If you want to check out any of the other episodes, I I don't care, whatever you want to do, follow me on Twitter at John underscore PLE. We'll be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. And during that stretch, when they won five games and lost three games, the games they lost, they scored zero, one, and three runs. A very good possibility that if Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. How come you're only looking at a certain amount of money that gets rewarded to a particular franchise as we hit the halfway point here in the past ball show? Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. Now they come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I can drive out of the park. I was supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. 